Welcome to our Clothe with the Sun daily podcast, our daily reading and meditation on the gospel of the day. I am James Thomas. Today is Sunday, April 23rd, 2023. It is the third Sunday of Easter. Our reading today is taken from the gospel according to St. Luke. That very day, the first day of the week, Two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus, and they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped looking downcast. One of them, named Clopas, said to him in reply, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of the things that have taken place there in these days? And he replied to them, What sort of things? They said to him, The things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. How our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since this took place. Some women from our group, however, have astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back and reported that they had indeed seen a vision of angels, who announced that he was alive. Then some of those with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had described, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke! Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. As they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going on farther. But they urged him, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and it happened that while he was at table with them, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. With that their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way, and opened the scriptures to us? So they set out at once and returned to Jerusalem, where they were found gathered together, where they found gathered together the eleven, and those with them who were saying, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then the two recounted what had taken place on the way, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. So typically on the third week of Easter, we read this reading known as The Road to Emmaus. It's one of the times in which Jesus revealed himself after the resurrection, and there seems to be a common theme in Jesus's post-resurrection appearances, and that is they either don't recognize him or they're just not sure that they recognize him. When he first appears at the tomb to Mary Magdalene, she thinks he's the gardener. On the road to Emmaus, they obviously don't recognize him until he breaks the bread for them, which is a reference to the Eucharist. 
which it may brings up all sorts of interesting points. Were these people not part of the 12 apostles and yet still there at the Last Supper? And how is it that the Eucharist revealed Jesus so that now they know it's him, whereas before talking to this man face-to-face all this time, they didn't know it was him? Is it possible? I don't know. Maybe his head was covered when he was traveling. I, I guess. It doesn't say that, though. Later on, when they see him at the Sea of Galilee, they they aren't sure who it is yet. And, and John says to Peter, it is the Lord. And then they get excited. And it says they don't ask who he is when they're sitting with him around the fire, indicating, well, if you all knew who he was, why did you have to ask? Uh, even in the upper room, Jesus is proving to them, it is I. Look at the marks in my hands. Look at the marks in my feet. So why is it that they don't recognize Jesus? Well, if we just want to look theologically at what's happening after the resurrection, and I've said this in some previous sermons, it could have to do with his crucifixion. You know, even the Bible says in the Old Testament, predicting the crucifixion, that you wouldn't be able to recognize him because he was beaten so badly. So is it possible that he still bears the marks to such a degree of his death that they can't recognize him? Or... Is it simply a matter of now he's in his resurrected body, so he's been transformed, so he's not recognizable in the way that he was before? Or perhaps it's a combination of both. I think very often this is what is referred to in sermons about this, that he's been changed. His death changed him. His resurrection has changed him. But they're longing for him. They're especially longing for him now in his resurrection. They want it to be him, and they are overjoyed when they figure out that it is him. And what enables them to figure that out? Well, the marks of the nails in his hands and in his feet, but in the road to Emmaus, it has to do with the breaking of the bread, which in our Catholic faith, we very quickly go to the Eucharist. He he celebrated the Eucharist with them. And in fact, in a previous sermon about this, because we heard this gospel during Easter week, I talked about how this is like another mass. I mean, it's it's Jesus's first mass after his resurrection. He had the first mass period at the Last Supper, Holy Thursday, and now he's, what's he doing? He breaks open the word for them. He explains the word. That's the liturgy of the word that we have at every mass. And then he breaks the bread for them. That's the liturgy of the Eucharist. And they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. So we have very strong reason to believe this is not ordinary bread. But this is something miraculous through which God is revealed. And whereas I preached before about this being um, this being a great reading to help us meditate on the Mass and how we're supposed to pray the Mass and how we're supposed to recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. If you're not, if you're attending Mass and you're not more and more intensely connecting with Jesus in the Eucharist, at the time of the consecration, then at the time of communion, then that means you're not properly prepared. So that whole period of time where they're walking with Jesus and he's revealing himself through the word, well, we need that too. We need the liturgy, the word in the mass, but we also need preparation for mass, such as going to confession, such as taking time in prayer before mass, perhaps praying a rosary before mass because Our Lady prepares us for Jesus better than anybody else could getting ourselves focused and concentrating. And in my daily sermons, 
Uh, we're talking right now about the Mass, about the Eucharist, about how to better connect with Jesus through the Mass. So if you want to tune in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week, uh, I will be talking more about that. But right now, I just wanted to stop on this theme <laughs> by way of that very long introduction of just recognizing Jesus, in addition to recognizing him in the Mass, in communion, in the breaking of the bread, which we will talk more about. Our Lord wants us to recognize him as he is all over the place. He's in our world. He's in the people around us. Of course, he's in the scriptures. He's par excellence in the Eucharist, yes. But he is in other people. And when we realize this more and more, the presence of Jesus in the people around us, because he talks about this in various places in the Gospels, it leads us to a happier life. It leads us to greater love, better relationships. I mean, Jesus identifies himself with the poor and the sick. Jesus identifies himself. I mean, when he says, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Whatever you do for my brothers and sisters, especially the least of them, you do for me. But there's also just this reality that we are made in God's image. And who is the image of God? It's not just a thing that we are made in, but it's a person. The Bible tells us Jesus is the image of the Father. He is the perfect image, and we are made in that image. We were made for Jesus. We were made through Jesus, by the Father, but through the Son we were made. And so our redemption is by the Father through the Son. It makes sense that the Son is the one to come to get us because we are made in the image that is him. <clears throat> Years ago, I was told a story about a school for up-and-coming rabbis. It was like a uh, Jewish uh, you know, rabbinical school, scriptural school, where they were staying over. They were learning their faith, getting ready to teach it to others kind of like what Catholics would call a seminary. And <clears throat> things were not going well in the seminary. Things were not coming together. Relationships were horrible. Uh, the place was thinking about shutting down. They just think things weren't coming together. It wasn't working out on many levels. Perhaps it wasn't being run very well. And they had a visitor one day of a very old rabbi. And he was very, very wise. He was known for his preaching. So the men came together that were studying there the day that this man came to visit, and he gave a sermon that was very brief, very simple, but very uh, intense, <laughs> perhaps even a little mystically confusing. He said, I have it on authority, and I know for a fact that one of you is the Messiah. Now, remember, among the Jewish people, especially those that are more observant, they're still waiting for the Messiah. And that's their their whole religion is about this. I mean, that's the Old Testament is all pointing to the coming of the Messiah, which we as Christians believe to be Jesus. But many of the Jews are still waiting for him. So he says to them, one of you right here in this place is the Messiah. And that was it. He didn't say much more. And they took time to pray and to ponder what could his words possibly mean. And over the next few weeks, they were just confused. But things changed a little bit in that school. 
they started to treat each other with greater kindness. They started to just hold each other in a greater sense of awe, giving each other more space, giving each other uh, the comfort of silence, not having to quickly tell each other what to do or criticize each other. They looked at each other with a greater awe, not knowing who it was that he was talking about. And over time, they started to do better. They started to perform better in their studies. And just in general, the state of the school started to improve. And they started to get more members. And the people running the place just started doing a better job. And and everything just became more efficient. Financially, they were doing better. Everything just came together and the place just improved tremendously. And that was it. They never figured out exactly who the Messiah was, but it became a holy place, which it had stopped being for a long time. So there was truth in those rabbis' words. One of you is the Messiah. Yes, we are all made in the image and likeness of God. Of course, in Christianity, through baptism and then through the other sacraments, we become the body of Christ. In a sense, we become other Christs. Through holy orders, it happens even more so in a sacramental way. The priest is configured to Christ the head, but even baptism configures us to Christ, the mark of baptism. And even in our creation, we are made in God's image, and Jesus identifies himself in others, those those around us, especially those most in need. So imagine if we had that attitude towards everybody, one of you is the Messiah, if we held each other in awe and reverence as if that was Jesus Christ right there in our midst. This is the story of people like, and I just want to mention three, Mother Teresa, St. Francis of Assisi, and Pope John Paul II. Mother Teresa, and I always go back to this one example because it spells out everything. When she and her sisters were struggling to serve the poor, they, they didn't have enough food to give them. They didn't have enough energy. They didn't have enough time. In our current pragmatic uh, situation in the church and in the world, in our current situation where everything is run like a business and there's a little bit of the heresy of Pelagianism, actually there's a lot of it in our world and in our church today, that we get to heaven by our works and that we can fix everything by our own ingenuity. Mother Teresa said, in order to fix this problem, you know what we're going to do? We're going to add a second holy hour every day into our daily routine. And it's, I think, the only community in the church, officially recognized by the church, where there's a mandatory two holy hours every day, two hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I, I think they do one in the morning, one in the evening. But she said, this will fix the problem. And by doing that, now... They're just more in tune with Christ, plain and simple. By spending time with him like that, face-to-face in adoration, they their love for him is greater. Their attentiveness to him is greater. And as a result, when they're out on the street and they're dealing with the poor and the sick and the dying and the people that they minister to, they see Jesus more clearly in these other people because they're just more in tune with the face of Christ. And the face of Christ is in all those other people, especially those most in need. St. Francis of Assisi, in his short life, and his life that just, oh my goodness, had such a great impact for centuries and still is just impacting so many people, he 
initially was more self-centered. He was about himself. He had money. He had career. I mean, he had everything he could need. He had great security. And there's the famous story where he encountered one day the leper, and he was just disgusted by this leper, and he essentially, I forget the exact words. I should go back and read his life story again. St. Bonaventure uh, is the official source uh, of the life of St. Francis. He lived not long after him, and he wrote his biography officially. Of course, there's many other books written about him, but there's the story of the the leper, and St. Francis essentially said to him, get away from me, you're disgusting. And the man was begging. These poor people lived all around Assisi, and there were many lepers. And St. Francis shunned him. And then there was that moment of revelation, and the Lord had been working in his heart to change him. And there was that moment in which he saw the face of Christ in the leper, and he apologized, and he gave him his money. He gave him, I think he gave him clothing as well. St. Francis, there's this theme of like nakedness in a sense in the life of St. Francis. He's always taken everything and given it away. And his father, you know, was in the clothing industry. The father was rich and he had his business and he wanted Francis to inherit the business. And Francis just was given everything away at that point. So the thing was, he hugged the man, he kissed the man, this leper, And then he spent the rest of his life ministering to the lepers, ministering to the poor and the sick, and just giving as much as he could and living in great poverty himself. He went from one extreme to the other because he saw the face of Christ in these people that desperately needed help that he initially saw as disgusting. And I'm sorry if any details of that story are not exactly as they should be. I should go back and research that again. I, I, as a kid, I used to read that story a lot because we had children's books that, that had the life of St. Francis, and that's the, the thing that's etched in my mind about that story. But it's a, it's a basic concept, though, that I believe I am getting correct here, and that is, yeah, he went from one extreme to the other, and it was the Lord working in his heart. And the Lord, you know, this is what he does. When people feel called to minister to the poor and the sick and the downtrodden, it's usually because Jesus speaks to them through these poor and these sick. St. Catherine of Siena in her life, she's one of the patron saints of nurses. In her early life, she was a contemplative. She spent many hours in prayers, in prayer, and then the Lord revealed to her, no, I want you to go now and work to serve the poor and the sick. And she saw the face of Christ in her patience. With Pope John Paul II, another thing just to briefly touch on, because, I mean, I've had like 10 courses in this. Pope John Paul's theology of the body is just so huge and there's so much to it. But in Pope John Paul's theology of the body, he says, we need to ask the Lord. And if we've received confirmation, we have received the fullness of this. He says, ask the Lord for the gifts of the Spirit to be manifested in us, in particular, the gift of piety. Piety is similar to the gift of reverence or fear of the Lord. Reverence and fear of the Lord, that is meant to give us a greater respect and attentiveness to God. The gift of piety is about reverence and attentiveness to the things of God, a greater love and respect for the things of God. And what is a greater quote-unquote thing of God, possession of God, love of God, than the human person? So Pope John Paul used to say, When we struggle in this world, as we certainly do, with impurity, sexual immorality, 
He says, pray for the gift of piety to be revealed in us. Because it goes back to when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. When we are pure in our hearts, when we have that gift of piety, especially towards other people, then we see the face of God in them. And this is something I use when I'm counseling young people. You know, if I get, you know, I work a lot with teenagers, and if I get the teenagers to get to the point where they say, okay, I love Jesus, I want to live for him. Okay, that's fantastic. Okay. And I, the thing is, initially, there's, that's like phase one, like, okay, I, there's something about God that I love and I want to follow. I want to start listening to K-Love. I want to listen to Christian music. I want to pray more. Okay, that's great. But then there's another stage which very often people don't get to, but this is great if we're moving in this direction, and that is the stage where we say, I want to live a moral life. Okay, fantastic. This is an indication of conversion. We want to make better decisions. We want to love God and love neighbor as he has called us to do. Then for a lot of, and in particular, young men that I work with, but hey, this is true for everybody, young and old, male and female, that desire to have a pure heart in a world where very few people are living purity and perhaps the individual in question has already lived a life of great immorality and sexual impurity. So Pope John Paul says we need to cultivate the gift of piety. So I would work, especially with these young men, on how can you cultivate the gift of piety? Well, I mean, one way to say it very briefly, perhaps a little bit crudely, is to say you got to look at her face. And we have to get in the practice of looking at their faces. But, of course, this goes so much deeper than that. Look at that. All right, if we're talking about a man looking at a woman, for example, realize she is your sister first before all else. The Song of Songs says, my sister, my bride. Even if she's meant to be your bride, you initially need to see her as your sister, your sister in Christ, your sister as a creation of Almighty God. And that's where piety comes in. We, the the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit, they are there for us, for the taking. We're allowed to have them. We're allowed to use them. God wants to give them to us in abundance. And that's what our confirmation was all about. So many people don't understand what it is that they received when the bishop came. And very often it was in eighth grade, which I think is like the worst age to give confirmation because those kids are not focused. Younger, they would be more excited. Older, there's a more maturity. But this is the point of it. The Lord wants to give us these gifts to live the Christian life to the best of our ability. One of these gifts is the gift of piety, and piety is the gift that helps us to be pure and to have better relationships. And very often we look at that and we think it's about repression, repression of our sexuality and our desires. It's not at all about repression. It's about proper ordering. It's about saying, no, like this person or these people or or even a woman in a TV show or whatever, a movie, that's not an object for me to use. That's a person for me to love and respect. That's a person. And God wants to give us that gift. And the more we ask him, the more he will give it so that we see the people around us as another Christ, as my brother and sister in the Lord. And then you're capable of having a fulfilling relationship. So many people just so go so quickly to immorality that they haven't experienced. Never mind have they not experienced 
you know, having a deep prayer life and all the joy that comes from that. But there's also a beautiful life that we can enter into when we see the people around us as our brothers and sisters and not simply as objects to be used. There is great joy in that. There's great healing in that. The more we learn how to do that and engage in that, the more then we ourselves are receiving that healing. The more people are looking at us that way and entering into deeper relationships. And as far as romance goes, okay, that has its place too. That comes later. But initially, like the Bible says, my sister, my bride, being a brother and sister of Christ comes first. So getting back to the road to Emmaus, Jesus wants us to see him. He wants us to recognize him. And there's so many ways to recognize him. He is all around us and he's there to love us. He's there to heal us. He came into the world to touch us, to be part of us, to just do so much for us to help us to achieve the purposes for which we were made. He made us for great things. He made us ultimately for heaven, but we can experience some of that heaven here on earth. And in heaven, there's perfect purity. There's perfect piety. There's perfect reverence. In other words, properly ordered, loving relationships, primarily with God and then with one another, because we see the face of Christ in everyone to perfection. And that is an ultimate source of joy. The greatest source of joy, however, being that we are with the Lord and see him face to face and one with him. So these are things as we continue to celebrate the Easter season that we should be pondering and getting excited about. The Lord has come into our world. He's conquered sin and death. He's paid the price for our sins. And now he wants us to experience him in our brothers and sisters, and also directly in prayer. So we ask the Lord to stir up our hearts for greater love of him, greater love of our brothers and sisters, and greater joy as we go through this world, seeing the face of Christ, recognizing Jesus, and uh, just basking in his love through him and through all that he has made for us. I hope everyone has a great day. God bless you.